I'd like to direct your attention once again to Genesis chapter 48. Um, this is one of those times where the passage I preached last week was intended to be a singular sermon, but it has grown not just into the passage for today, but also next week. So the Lord just kind of expanded uh, as I've been looking in this text. As you're turning there, just to give you an update on how things are going with Emma and my family, we are still just pressing on each week. Uh, this week, still just building on things of the previous week, getting a little stronger in her swallow, a little stronger in her cough. We're still praying that in the future, near future, Lord willing, we'd be able to remove the tracheostomy and that would just make her care much more easy. The, the biggest change uh, for us is that in the last week and a half, we've started seeing a little bit of facial movement, maybe the beginnings of a smile. And the amazing thing is, is that Emma's doing this on command when we ask her. So we're seeing that, the beginnings of it. So we'd ask you to continue to pray uh, as you pray for her healing, praying for us to continue to build on these things and just for her to get stronger and we'll see movement. We were just reminded this week, we're at the point that anything we see is really the hand of God at this point. So please keep praying for those things. Genesis 48 is a chapter that contains the moment where Jacob blesses his grandchildren. To do this, he adopted them as his sons. When he was looking at the sons of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim, he said to them, You will be to me as my own sons. Just like Reuben and Simeon are mine, Manasseh and Ephraim, you will be my children. And I will bless you. Verses 15 and 16 contain the blessing that Joseph prayed upon his grandsons who became his own children. And today and next Sunday, I want us to look at the foundation of that blessing. What is our hope for the blessing of God? What's your foundation that you can build upon to say with confidence, Father, I want your smile upon my life. Next week, I want us to look at the outcome, the desired outcome of that blessing. So I direct your attention to verses 15 and 16 of chapter 48 as we read the words of the Scripture, the words of Jacob as he blesses his grandchildren. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we bow before you confessing that your word is truth. We also confess our need for truth in our lives. For it is by your truth that we will be set free. Father, as we make these confessions, we also ask that your spirit would work within us. To please open our eyes to the truth of your word. Not so that we will know facts, but that we will be transformed, Lord. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts. That we will be changed. 
that we would leave behind the things that are displeasing to you and we would pursue you and pursue godliness with a passion that burns brightly. Grant these things, Father, so that you will be glorified. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. On one of the walls in the lobby of CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, there's a group of stars. There are several rows of stars. The stars contain no names. There are simply letters above them that say these stars are placed in honor of those who have given their life in service for their nation. Each star on that wall represents someone who laid down their life in service of the nation. In 1997, acting CIA director George Tennant did something a little bit unusual. He revealed the identity of the person, of the man, who received the very first star placed upon that wall. The story of Douglas McKinnon is the story of that agent. He was working undercover in China in 1949. The CIA got word to him that he needed to get out of the country. It was clear the communists were going to be taking over and that Agent McKinnon needed to get out of the country by the quickest and safest route possible. He got word back to the agency that he would indeed be leaving, but he wouldn't be going alone. There were four others that he was going to lead out of the country and he would be taking a route that the communists would never find and never be aware of. And boy, was he right. They left in September of 1949 and began a seven-month journey on foot. For seven months, they journeyed through a desert, through a high, dangerous plateau, and through a portion of the Himalayan mountains on foot. The route was so dangerous that often what they would use as markers to guide their way were the graves of those who had died on the path before. They would use that as a tool to gauge we are on the right direction. Now here's the tragic part. Agent McKinnon never reached the destination. He was gunned down within sight of the line of Tibet and never made it. Now the analogy I want to draw from that is this. You and I are on a journey. It's a journey that's very dangerous. And just like Agent McKenna, the thing that keeps us pressing on through this journey is the fact that what lies behind us is certain death. And the hope of freedom, of true freedom, lies in front of us. So much like Pilgrim and John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim Progress, we are journeying toward the celestial city and on our journey we are encountering dangers, toils, and snares. And my prayer is that along this journey, you and I will reach the goal. That we will not be sidetracked. That we will not lose sight of what lies in front of us. Because there are things along this journey, things along the journey that would gun us down in a moment. These are temptations that we face. You see, we, we live in a technologically advanced society, but the truth is, the temptations that you and I face are the same temptations that Jacob faced, Isaac faced, Abraham faced, Ephraim and Manasseh faced. The temptations, the trio of temptations of power, of wealth, and pleasure. 
Those will sidetrack many, many a believer. So the promises of power, the pursuit of pleasure, and the wonders of wealth begin to grab our hearts so that we become enamored with them and begin to spend our lives in pursuit of those things which never last. Rather than the pursuit of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If those things were not enough, we will face adversity in our journey. You can count on it. To live a life of godliness is to live a life that will invite suffering. And that suffering at times will become so great that we will despair and that our faith will be tested and we will want to give up. We will want to quit and so adversity becomes the gunman that will often end our journey. So this morning I want us to think about how we can persevere when our journey is long and hard. How can we remain true to Christ when temptation is ever present? And how can we burn brightly for God when the forces of this world would extinguish the fire that would burn within us? We seek guidance for our journey. We seek blessing. Because deep down, that's what we hunger for, to know that the blessing of God is upon our lives as we journey through this world, that smile of God, the favor of God. We all long for that. To know God's good pleasure in our lives. So following the example of Jacob, we're going to look back. You see, Jacob looked back to Abraham and Isaac to see the foundation for the blessings that he desired for his boys, that his blessings he desired for his life. But you and I are not going to be looking at Abraham and Isaac. We're going to be looking at Jesus. Now, this is not doing injustice to the text because Jesus himself in John 8 said these words. He said, Abraham, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So you see, Abraham was looking forward to Jesus. We are looking back at Jesus to understand the blessing for our journey. Because verse 15 shows us that the longing we have for the pleasure of God in our lives is secured in him. The blessing of God doesn't come about based upon our worthiness. It's not based upon karma as if you do good and then good happens. The blessing of God is based upon God's faithfulness as the one who has entered into a covenant relationship with us. When you look at verse 15, look at the language that J Jacob uses in the blessing. The foundation begins with the covenant that God entered into with Abraham. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Now a covenant defines and sets the boundaries of a relationship. A covenant is much deeper than a contract that can be broken if one of the parties doesn't live up to it. A covenant endures forever. In fact, that is why a covenant is described in the Hebrew as to be cut. That's why an animal was cut in two as a way of saying, if I break the covenant, may what happened to the animal happen to me. In fact, that is the only way a covenant is broken is by death. A covenant defines the relationship. This is the nature of it. It establishes the, the relationship. Now, even though the word covenant is not found in these verses, it forms the backdrop on which this painting is portrayed. The language of walking with God is taken from the covenant that God initiated with Abraham when he called him into relationship. Up on the screen, you'll see Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. 
This the call of God upon Abraham. He says, I am God Almighty. You want the basis for being called into covenant? There it is. God Almighty has said, here's my bona fides to call you into a relationship. God says that I will define and I will set the boundaries for. Here's what it is. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. Walk before me and be blameless. You see, to walk in covenant with God is not about intellect and knowing facts. The call of God into a covenant is a call to fidelity in all that God says and do. Because we are in covenant with God through Christ, we are to live lives that reflect that. We are familiar with this language. The greatest example we have today of a covenant is a marriage relationship. Where that husband and wife will stand in front of a, a group of people and they will make their vows and say, I will cling, I will be with him as long as we both shall live. I will be with her as long as we both shall live. A covenant calls for fidelity. I have never presided over a wedding, and never will, in which I ask the bride and groom to say, do you take her to be, uh, be your wife and promise to cling to her as long as you feel like it? That wouldn't be much of a ceremony, would it? Do you promise to cling unto him as long as he does what you want? Well, that may be underwritten, but we don't say that. That's not the idea of a covenant. A covenant calls for fidelity. And as this covenant is initiated by God, he says, walk. Now, that idea of walk is lifestyle. I want your lifestyle, Abraham, because we are entering into covenant to be one that is blameless. One that seeks to live according to what God says. That's the same in the New Testament. We are called into covenant through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, no one comes unto the Father except by me. And the idea of obedience is still there. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. If you are in a love relationship through covenant, you will obey me. And that is the call to fidelity. Now, part of being in the covenant is realizing that our walk, our life, is lived before the face of God. The English cleans up the Hebrew a little bit to make it understandable, but that phrase, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, could very literally be translated, before the face of God, Abraham and Isaac. Our lives are lived before the face of God. Who of us can be blameless before the face of God? There's nowhere to hide. One of my favorite stories that my father used to tell me is something that happened to him when he was in basic training for the Air Force. He left little Athens, Tennessee and was outside of San Antonio, Texas going through basic training. And he said he remembered the day very clearly because it ended up being one of the worst days of his life. Dad said they were standing at attention as the drill sergeant was coming through to inspect them and to get ready to put them through the paces. And my dad was about my height, and he said the drill sergeant was just a little bit shorter, so that basically the, the drill sergeant's head came to my dad's eyebrows. Dad said this moment came as the sergeant's making his way down the line that this sneeze started to build in my dad's throat. You ever had that experience where you know you're about to sneeze and you want to stifle it, but there's no stifling the sneeze? 
And dad said the moment that drill sergeant got in front of him and turned and looked him in the face, my dad said he let out the biggest sneeze you can imagine. And dad said it was the worst day of his life. Those of you in the arm that served, you can understand. Because once that happened, it was right in the face of the sergeant and there was no hiding it. We are before the face of God. There's no hiding our sin. There's no way to deny it. Well, it wasn't me that sneezed. No. So did, how in the world can we be blameless? How can we live in such a way? Here is the good news. Here's the good news of the gospel. How can we live blamelessly when we know that we struggle with sin? We live blamelessly because of the life of Jesus Christ. Because the righteousness of Jesus is applied to us. Upon the screen, you'll see a passage from 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31. Now this is one example. There are many through the New Testament. He says, because of Him, that's God. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Now what has Jesus done? Why is it such a big deal that you are in Him? And we are in Him by faith. Paul answers that. Who became to us wisdom from God, who became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the idea of righteousness is what I draw your attention to. Righteousness means rectified, wrong set right. How are the wrongs that we have done, how are the, the sneezes we have made in the face of God, as it were, made right? Through Jesus. His righteousness. So that we don't boast and say, look how righteous I am, for none of us are righteous. But we boast in Christ, who is the righteousness of God on our behalf by faith. And not only is that righteousness credited to us, but then God enables us to walk before Him in the way He designs. If we are made righteous with God, this is not a theoretical righteousness. It is a righteousness that is to be lived through our actions. We are reminded and we are taught this. In the book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, up on the screen, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know what that means? Walk. Live it. Live out your salvation. Do it with fear and trembling. Take the salvation you have and express it, not just with words from your mouth, but with the life that you live. For it is God who works in you. How can we walk in such a way? It is God working within us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So this blessing that we desire, the blessing we long of God's favor, is supplied through Christ and applied to us in Jesus. Now what about when we start to wonder though? We're prone to do that. That's where the second part of this foundation comes in. Our blessing for the journey is not only found in the covenant we have with God, but it is also found in the fact that He is our shepherd. Look at the end of verse 15. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. 
This image of a shepherd, this metaphor is one that is very familiar to Jacob. He had served as a shepherd. He's living as well as his family as shepherds right now in the land of Goshen. So he takes this image and he says, that's what God has done to me. He has led me. He has provided for me. He has guided me. And I really believe that he is looking back in his life to see the way that God has guided him every step of the way. That he's saying, I'm here in Egypt because God shepherded me through a famine that was in the land and brought me to Egypt. I think that Jacob is looking back and he is saying that, that when I was on the run for my uncle Laban who wanted to kill me, that God shepherded me and led me back to the promised land. I think Jacob remembered the dream where God told him, I am with you wherever you go. I think Jacob even remembered the words that his mother told him that even when he was in the womb with his twin brother Esau, that God said, you have twins, Rebecca, but the younger is going to be ruler over the elder. That's why he says, God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Even in the womb, God was shepherding him. Now this image of a shepherd is used throughout the scripture. In Exodus, God is the shepherd who leads his people out of Egypt. In the Psalms, David sung, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The prophets preached to Israel and to Judah saying, God is the shepherd who is leading you back into the fold. But the pinnacle of it is Jesus, who in John chapter 10 said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. That's why we need not fear whenever it seems like life is out of control. Because he's our shepherd. And our shepherd has invested his life and his blood into our life. We are brought to him through his sacrifice. And if he has invested that within us, his body, the church, do you think he would leave us? Do you think he would be distracted? I recently read a report in the Telegraph, a British newspaper, of a, an unusual circumstance that happened in a small village in Spain. It seemed that the 911 numbers in Spain, or 1112 there, began getting calls around 4.30 in the morning of loud sheep noises in the streets. And a lot of them. And what they discovered was this. There were 1,300 sheep, 1,300 sheep, running amok through the little village of Husca. 1,300 sheep. That's a lot of lamb. They discovered the problem. Outside of town was the shepherd who was supposed to be watching them and guiding them to their destination. And about four in the morning, the night got the better of him. And he fell asleep. And while he was asleep, the sheep wandered off. You and I serve a shepherd who will never fall asleep. He will never grow tired and He will never leave us. He will guide us on our journey. He will provide for us on the path. And when we wander away, He will restore us. And He will restore us because of who He is. Look in verse 16. He has brought us into covenant. He shepherds us. And now we see that He is the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. The blessing is built upon the idea of covenant, upon shepherding, and upon redeeming. But there are two unusual things here. God is referred to as the angel, and he's also said the one who has redeemed Jacob. Now let's start with the latter one. What's this idea of redeemed? Now the redeemer is the one in a family who would, who would work to rescue those who were in distress. 
The Redeemer is the protector of the weak against the mighty. And it's a term of salvation. And the unique thing here is that this is the only time in Genesis where the phrase Redeemer is used. Of God is the one who buys back, who brings back, who rescues one from trouble. So the questions are this. When was Jacob in trouble and how was he redeemed from that? Now I think there are three instances in Jacob's life that are connected with this phrase, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. The reason the word angel is used is because two of the three, God worked through an angel to redeem Jacob. The first occurred whenever Jacob had been sent to his uncle Laban to find a wife, where Jacob's daddy said, I want you to go to a foreign land. I want you to run from Esau because Esau wants to kill you because you deceived him. So Jacob is now on a journey to a land to meet an uncle he'd never met before to find a woman for a wife that he never knew. He never knew before. And he's uncertain. He's scared. And we are told that on the journey he lays down, he uses a rock for a pillow, and God gives him a dream in which angels are descending from heaven and ascending back to heaven. And he says to Jacob, you will come back here. Don't be afraid of the future, Jacob. Because the land on which you are sleeping, I'm going to give to you and to your offspring. Don't worry about the future. I've got a plan for you. He redeemed Jacob from the fear of uncertainty. The second connection is found with the word evil. Another use of the word evil in Jacob's life occurred when he was leaving Laban after working there for over 20 years. Laban wanted to kill Jacob. You get the feeling Jacob was a wanted man. Esau wants to kill him. Laban wants to kill him because Laban thinks Jacob has robbed him of his household gods. And on the way to catch Jacob, God intervenes and gives Laban a dream and says to him, don't do the evil you desire to do. Look at the text. God's redeeming from all evil. Laban wanted to do evil to Jacob and God intervenes and redeems him from it. In the third instance of an angel in this text with Jacob's life is probably the one that is best known where he is rescued where he is rescued from his meeting to Esau where the meeting he dreaded the most of seeing his brother face to face and believing that Esau was going to try to kill him God intervenes and says I will deliver you for you have wrestled with God you have clung to me now like Jacob you and I stand in the need of redemption because we are trapped by the very same things that plagued Jacob. You and I face uncertainty of the future. The unknown of tomorrow will cause great anxiety for today. We have our plans. We think we may know what will happen, but the truth is there are no guarantees. And the reality is that you and I need to make our plans in pencil because those plans can be quickly erased. And that anxiety can be paralyzing. When we become worried about what will happen, what will happen when this test comes back, what will happen with our nation, what will happen with my children, well, I want you to know that in the midst of those worries, believer, you are serving Jesus, who is the Good Shepherd. And if you can say confidently, I am in faith, I am in relationship with Jesus, you need not fear because He is your shepherd, therefore you shall not want. You will have the needs you need provided for. If Jesus is your shepherd, He will lead you to lie down in green 
pastures and He will lead you beside still waters. If Jesus is your shepherd, He will lead you in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. When Jesus is your shepherd, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need not fear evil for His rod and His staff will protect you. When Jesus is your shepherd, know that He will provide a table for you even in the midst of your enemies so that when death is an enemy staring at you, you have a table of goodness. When worry is an an enemy staring at you, you have a table of God's goodness. And because Jesus is your shepherd, your head will overflow with oil so that your cup never needs to be refilled because He is your good shepherd. Believer, know that goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Don't let anxiety and worry about the future rob you of God's joy today. Look to your shepherd. That's where the blessing lies. He's in control. Why should we be anxious when God is our shepherd? Jacob was afraid of the consequences of his sin. Remember, he he had deceived Esau. You may say Esau was willing to be deceived, but you know what? Jacob was still an active party in deception. And now, as the famous preacher R.G. Lee once preached, there is always, always, always a payday someday. Jacob's about to meet Esau, and brother, it's payday. And he is scared of what will happen. God intervened so that the meeting he dreaded became the meeting he loved. One day you will have a meeting You will have a meeting where you see God face to face. How will you fare at that meeting? We live our lives before Him now. But on one day, we will stand literally face to face with God. If that were today, how would you fare? If we rely on our own goodness and righteousness, we will not fare well at all. That's where there is good news. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The context of that verse is dealing with standing before God on the day of judgment. And he's saying the love of God through Jesus Christ casts out the fear of punishment. The meeting you may dread now can turn to a meeting you look forward to because of the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. That is our blessing for the journey. So where are you looking today? Are you looking for the blessing of God? If you are, come to Jesus. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.